Section 12 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28. Lincoln's Re-Election in 1864. Part 1. It was not until the fall of 1863 that Abraham Lincoln was able to point to any substantial results from the long months of hard thought and cautious experiment he had given to the Civil War. By that time he did have something to show. The borders of the Confederacy had been pressed back and shut in by an impregnable wall of ships and men. Not only were the borders of the Confederacy narrowed, the territory had been cut in two by the opening of the Mississippi, which, in Lincoln's expressive phrase, now ran unvexed to the sea. He had a war machine at last which kept the ranks of the army full. He had found a commander-in-chief in Grant, and, not less important, he had found, simultaneously with Grant, also Sherman, McPherson, and Thomas, as well as the proper places for the men with whom he had tried such costly experiments, for Burnside and Hooker. He had his first effective results, too, from emancipation, that policy which he had inaugurated with such foreboding. Fully 100,000 former slaves were now in the United States service, and they had proved beyond question their value as soldiers. More than this, it was evident that some form of emancipation would soon be adopted by the former slave states of Tennessee, Arkansas, Maryland, and Missouri. At every point, in short, the policy which Lincoln had set in motion with painful foresight and labor was working as he had believed it would work, but it was working slowly. He saw that many months of struggle and blood and patience were needed to complete his tasks. Many months, and in less than a year there would be a presidential election, and he might be obligated to leave his task unfinished. He did not hesitate to say frankly that he wanted the opportunity to finish it. Among the leaders of the Republican Party were a few conservatives who, in the fall of 1863, supported Lincoln in his desire for a second term. But there were more who doubted his ability and who were secretly looking for an abler man. At the same time, a strong and open opposition to his re-election had developed in the radical wing of the party. The real cause of this opposition was Lincoln's unswervable purpose to use emancipation purely as a military measure. The earliest active form this opposition took was probably under the direction of Horace Greeley. In the spring of 1863, Mr. Greeley had become thoroughly disheartened by the slow progress of the war and the meager results of the Emancipation Proclamation. He was looking in every direction for someone to replace Lincoln, and eventually he settled on General Rosecrans, who at that moment was the most successful general before the country. Greeley, after consulting with a number of Republican leaders, decided that someone should go to Rosecrans and sound him. James R. Gilmore, Edmund Kirk, was chosen for this mission. Mr. Gilmore recounts, in his personal recollections of Abraham Lincoln, as an evidence of the extent of the discontent with Lincoln, that when he started on his mission, Mr. Greeley gave him letters to Rosecrans from about all the more prominent Republican leaders, except Roscoe Conkling, Charles Sumner, and Henry Wilson. Mr. Greeley's idea was, as he instructed Mr. Gilmore, to find out first if Rosecrans was sound on the goose, political slang for sound on the anti-slavery policy, 
and secondly if he would consider the nomination to the presidency if mr gilmore found rosecrans satisfactory greeley declared that he would force lincoln to resign put hamlin in his place and compel the latter to give rosecrans the command of the whole army his idea was no doubt that the war would then be finished promptly and rosecrans would naturally be the candidate in eighteen sixty four mr gilmore went on his mission rosecrans seemed to him to fulfil mr greeley's ideas and finally he laid the case before him the general replied very promptly my place is here the country gave me my education and so has a right to my military services he also declared that mr greeley was wrong in his estimate of lincoln and that time would show it lincoln knew thoroughly the feeling of the radicals at this time he knew the danger there was to his hopes of a second term in opposing them but he could be neither persuaded nor frightened into modifying his policy the most conspicuous example of his firmness was in the case of the missouri radicals the radical party in missouri was composed of men of great intelligence and perfect loyalty but they were men of the fremont type idealists incapable of compromise and impatient of caution they had been in constant conflict with the conservatives of the state since the breaking out of the war and by the spring of eighteen sixty three the rupture had become almost a national affair both sides claimed to be union men and to believe in emancipation but while the conservatives believed in gradual emancipation the radicals demanded that it be immediate the fight became so bitter that as lincoln said to one of the radicals who came to him early in eighteen sixty three begging his interference either party would rather see the defeat of their adversary than of jefferson davis you ought to have your heads knocked together he added in his exasperation finally he determined that he must break up somehow what he called their pestilent factional quarrel and sent a new military governor general j m schofield to missouri the advice he gave him was this let your military measures be strong enough to repel the invader and keep the peace but not so strong as to unnecessarily harass and persecute the people it is a difficult role and so much greater will be the honor if you perform it well if both factions or neither shall abuse you you will probably be about right beware of being assailed by one and praised by the other general schofield was not able to live up to lincoln's counsel he incurred the suspicion and dislike of the radicals and they determined that he must be removed september first a great convention was held and a committee of seventy persons was appointed to go to washington and demand from mr lincoln a redress of grievances the convention of course had the sympathy of the radical anti-slavery element of the whole north in its undertaking and when the committee of seventy started for washington they received an ovation in almost every state through which they passed arrived in washington they became the centre of the town's interest and a great reception was given them in union league hall at which eminent men denounced the conservatives of missouri and demanded immediate emancipation mr lincoln did not receive the committee at once but sent for their secretary dr emile pretorius a leading german radical mr pretorius says in response to a request from the president himself i immediately in company with senator jim lane called at the white house 
Mr. Lane soon excused himself and left me alone with the president. I had a long talk with him, explaining the situation in Missouri, as we radicals viewed it, and stating just why we had come to Washington. We Germans had not felt so kindly toward Mr. Lincoln since he had set aside Fremont's proclamation of emancipation. We thought he had missed a great opportunity, and had thereby displayed a lack of statesmanship. We believed him to be under the influence of the Blair family. Now that he himself had issued an emancipation proclamation, we felt wronged, because it applied only to the states in rebellion, and not to our own state. Thus, I said to the President, you are really punishing us for our courage and patriotism. We felt, as Gratz Brown expressed it, that we had to fight three administrations, Lincoln's, Jeff Davis's, and our own Governor Gamble's. We felt that we had a right to complain because Lincoln sent out to Missouri generals that were not in sympathy with us. Our talk was of the very frankest kind. Lincoln said he knew I was a German revolutionist and expected me to take extreme views. I recollect distinctly his statement that he would rather be a follower than a leader of public opinion. He had reference to public opinion in the border states. We need the border states, said he. Public opinion in them has not matured. We must patiently educate them up to the right opinion. The situation at that time was less favorable in the other border states than in Missouri. Their union men had not the strong fighters that Missouri had. As things were then going, the attitude of the border states was of the very highest importance. I could realize that the more fully as Lincoln argued the case. An arrangement was made for the President to receive the committee on September 30th, and hear their statement of grievances. The imposing procession of delegates went to the White House at nine o'clock in the morning. At the committee's own request, all reporters and spectators were refused admission to the audience, only the President and one of his secretaries meeting them. Even the great front doors of the White House were locked during the forenoon. The conference began by the reading of an address which denounced the conservative party and demanded that General Schofield be removed and General Benjamin F. Butler be put in his place, and that the enrolled militia of the state be discharged and national troops replace them. After the reading of the address, the president replied, Mr. Enos Clark of St. Louis, who was one of the delegates, records the impression this reply made upon his mind. The President listened with patient attention to our address, says Mr. Clark, and at the conclusion of the reading replied at length. I shall never forget the intense chagrin and disappointment we all felt at the treatment of the matter in the beginning of his reply. He seemed to belittle and minimize the importance of our grievances, and to give magnitude to minor or unimportant matters. He gave us the impression of a pettifogger speaking before a justice of the peace jury. But as he talked on, and made searching inquiries of members of the delegation, and invited debate, it became manifest that his manner at the beginning was really the foil of a master, to develop the weakness of the presentation. Before the conclusion of the conference, he addressed himself to the whole matter in an elevated, dignified, exhaustive, and impressive manner. There was no report made of this conference, but I remember that Mr. Lincoln made this statement. 
you gentlemen must bear in mind that in performing the duties of the office i hold i must represent no one section of the union but i must act for all sections of the union in trying to maintain the supremacy of the government and he also said this i desire to so conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end when i come to lay down the reins of power i have lost every other friend on earth i shall at least have one friend left and that friend shall be down inside of me these were characteristic expressions toward the conclusion of the conference and after the whole matter had been exhaustively discussed by the president and the petitioners mr c d drake our chairman stepped forward and said mr president the time has now come when we can no longer trespass upon your attention but must take leave of you and in those deep impressive stentorian tones peculiar to mr drake he added many of those men who stand before you to-day return to inhospitable homes where rebel sentiments prevail and many of them sir in returning there do so at the risk of their lives and if any of those lives are sacrificed by reason of the military administration of this government let me tell you sir that their blood will be upon your garments and not upon ours during this impressive address the president stood before the delegation with tears streaming down his cheeks seeming deeply agitated the members of the delegation were then presented individually to the president and took leave of him i shall always remember my last sight of mr lincoln as we left the room i was withdrawing in company with others and as i passed out i chanced to look back mr lincoln had met some personal acquaintances with whom he was exchanging pleasantries and instead of the tears of a few moments before he was indulging in hearty laughter this rapid and wonderful transition from one extreme to the other impressed me greatly ex-governor johnson of missouri another member of the committee says of lincoln's reply to their address the president in the course of his reply hesitated a great deal and was manifestly as he said very much troubled over the condition of affairs in missouri he said he was sorry there should be such divisions and dissensions that they were a source of more anxiety to him than we could imagine he expressed his appreciation of the zeal of the radical men but sometimes thought they did not understand the real situation he besought us not to get out of humor because things were not going as rapidly as we thought they should the war he pointed out affected a much larger territory than that embraced within the borders of missouri and possibly he had better opportunity of judging of things than some of us gentlemen he spoke with great kindness but all the way through showed his profound regret at the condition of affairs in our state he regretted especially that some of the men who had founded the republican party should now be arrayed apparently against his administration i had met mr lincoln twice before then this time he appeared different from what he had on the two former occasions there was a perplexed look on his face when he said he was bothered about this thing he showed it he spoke kindly yet now and then there was a little rasping tone in his voice that seemed to say you men ought to fix this thing up without tormenting me but he never lost his temper one of mr lincoln's secretaries was present at this conference and made notes on mr lincoln's answer to the delegation 
the following sentences quoted from these notes in nicolay and hayes abraham lincoln show still further how plainly the president dealt with the committee your ideas of justice seem to depend on the application of it when you see a man loyally in favor of the union willing to vote men and money spending his time and money and throwing his influence into the recruitment of our armies i think it ungenerous unjust and impolitic to make views on abstract political questions a test of his loyalty i will not be a party to this application of a pocket inquisition you appear to come before me as my friends if i agree with you and not otherwise i do not here speak of mere personal friendship when i speak of my friends i mean those who are friendly to my measures to the policy of the government i am well aware that by many by some even among this delegation i shall not name them i have been in public speeches and in printed documents charged with tyranny and wilfulness with a disposition to make my own personal will supreme i do not intend to be a tyrant at all events i shall take care that in my own eyes i do not become one mr lincoln then sent the committee away promising to reply by letter to their address the events of the next day showed him more plainly than ever what a following they had the night after the conference secretary chase gave them a great reception at his house he did not hesitate to say in the course of the evening that he was heartily in sympathy with their mission and that he hoped their military department would be entrusted to a gentleman whose motto was freedom for all going on to new york the committee were given a great and enthusiastic meeting at cooper union william cullen bryant made a sympathetic speech and various members of the committee indulged in violent denunciations of the conservative element of the country and did not hesitate to threaten mr lincoln with revolutionary action if he did not yield to their demands mr lincoln of course was not insensible to the political power of the missouri radicals he knew that this was a test case he knew that they made their issue at a critical time for him it being the eve of the fall elections so important did his supporters consider it that he do something to pacify radical sentiment that mr leonard sweat one of his most intimate friends and one heartily in sympathy with his policy urged him one day in october to take a more advanced position and recommend in his annual message a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery turning to me suddenly he said is not the question of emancipation doing well enough now i replied it was well said he i have never done an official act with a view to promote my own personal aggrandizement and i don't like to begin now i can see that emancipation is coming whoever can wait for it will see it whoever stands in its way will be run over by it in spite of the pressure and threats of the committee of seventy lincoln when he answered their letter on october fifth yielded to none of their demands he would not remove general schofield he would not discharge the enrolled militia he repeated that they were acting as factionists declared that they failed to convince him that general schofield and the enrolled militia which they charged caused the suffering of the union party in the state were responsible and in a few remarkable paragraphs described what in his opinion was the cause of the trouble in missouri we are in civil war in such cases there always is a main question 
but in this case that question is a perplexing compound union and slavery it thus becomes a question not of two sides merely but of at least four sides even among those of us who are for the union saying nothing of those who are against it thus those who are for the union with but not without slavery those for it without but not with those for it with or without but prefer it with and those for it with or without but prefer it without among these again is a subdivision of those who are for gradual but not for immediate and those who are for immediate but not for gradual extinction of slavery it is easy to conceive that all these shades of opinion and even more may be sincerely entertained by honest and truthful men yet all being for the union by reason of these differences each will prefer a different way of sustaining the union at once sincerity is questioned and motives are assailed actual war coming blood grows hot and blood is spilled thought is forced from old channels into confusion deception breeds and thrives confidence dies and universal suspicion reigns each man feels an impulse to kill his neighbor lest he first be killed by him revenge and retaliation follow and all this as before said may be among honest men only but this is not all every foul bird comes abroad and every dirty reptile rises up these add crime to confusion strong measures deemed indispensable but harsh at best such men make worse by maladministration murders for old grudges and murders for pelf proceed under any cloak that will best cover for the occasion these causes amply account for what has occurred in missouri without ascribing it to the weakness or wickedness of any general he closed his letter refusing their requests with a few of those resolute sentences of which he was capable when he had made up his mind to do a thing in spite of all opposition i do not feel justified to enter upon the broad field you present in regard to the political differences between radicals and conservatives from time to time i have done and said what appeared to me proper to do and say the public knows it all it obliged nobody to follow me and i trust it obliges me to follow nobody the radicals and conservatives each agree with me in some things and disagree in others i could wish both to agree with me in all things for then they would agree with each other and would be too strong for any foe from any quarter they however choose to do otherwise and i do not question their right i too shall do what seems to be my duty i hold whoever commands in missouri or elsewhere responsible to me and not to either radicals or conservatives it is my duty to bear all but at last i must within my sphere judge what to do and what to forbear there was no mistaking this letter of lincoln it told the radicals not only of missouri but of the whole north that the president was not to be moved from his emancipation policy another complaint which many republicans as well as all democrats made against mr lincoln in eighteen sixty four was his interpretation of what constituted treason against the government their dissatisfaction culminated in what is known as the vallandigham case mr vallandigham was an ohio democrat of the copperhead variety who from the beginning had opposed the war although declaring himself for the union 
in the spring of eighteen sixty three his attacks on the administration were particularly virulent he accused the government of not being willing to meet the confederacy and arrange a peace of being unconstitutional in enforcing the draft and of making arbitrary military arrests and imprisonments the party which he represented seemed to be growing in influence every day and it was known that the efficiency of the army in the winter of eighteen sixty two sixty three had been seriously undermined by the influence of the copperhead element at home mr lincoln was opposed to noticing any opposition of this kind unless driven to it but not all of his subordinates felt the same way some of the generals in the army were especially incensed by it among them general burnside then at the head of the department of the ohio who on april thirteenth eighteen sixty three issued an order in which he said the habit of declaring sympathies for the enemy will not be allowed in this department persons committing such offences will be at once arrested with a view to being tried as above stated or sent beyond our lines into the lines of their friends it must be distinctly understood that treason expressed or implied will not be tolerated in this department mr vallandigham was angered by this order and in public addresses declared it a base usurpation of arbitrary authority which he should resist general burnside retaliated by ordering vallandigham's arrest at dayton ohio after a public address in which he had declared among other things that the present war was a wicked cruel and unnecessary war a war not being waged for the preservation of the union a war for the purpose of crushing out liberty and erecting a despotism a war for the freedom of the blacks and the enslavement of the white stating that if the administration had so wished the war could have been honorably terminated months ago that peace might have been honorably obtained by listening to the proposed intermediation of france etc etc vallandigham was tried soon after arrest by a military commission pronounced guilty and sentenced to close confinement in some fortress of the united states the arrest the trial by military instead of by civil court the sentence aroused a tremendous outcry throughout the country the best newspapers including the new york evening post and the new york tribune condemned the government protests and applications for his release poured in upon the president it is probable that mr lincoln regretted the arrest of vallandigham for he wrote burnside afterward all the cabinet regret the necessity of arresting vallandigham some perhaps doubting there was a real necessity for it being done all were for seeing you through with it lincoln had however no idea of releasing vallandigham his one concern was to prevent the prisoner appearing to the country as a martyr for liberty the victim of tyranny and taking the hint from burnside's order he directed that the prisoner be put beyond our military lines that is that he be sent over to the confederates general burnside objected to this his earnestness had so blinded his sense of humor that he did not see that this disposition of the prisoner would take away much of the sympathy and dignity which must always attend the tragedy of close confinement mr lincoln insisted and finally vallandigham attended only by a military escort was secretly conducted under a flag of truce within the lines of the confederate general braxton bragg there was nothing heroic about this turn in the affair 
vallandigham protested vehemently that he was not a sympathizer of the south that he was for the union the confederates were as disgusted as the prisoner mr lincoln they said to one another intends to make a botany bay of the confederacy the confederate secretary of war wrote general bragg in a rather irritable tone that it was clearly an abuse of the flag of truce to employ it to cover a guard over expelled citizens non-combatants an old friend of vallandigham in virginia offered the government to give him a home if he desired to remain in the confederacy but both vallandigham and the confederates saw the absurdity of the situation and desired only that it be changed as quickly as possible considerable correspondence passed between the prisoner and the authorities with the result that on june second jefferson davis ordered general bragg to send vallandigham as an alien enemy under guard of an officer to wilmington and the secretary of war wrote to the commissioner having the prisoner in charge the following directions it is not the desire or purpose of this government to treat this victim of unjust and arbitrary power with other than lenity and consideration but as an alien enemy he cannot be received to friendly hospitality or allowed a continued refuge in freedom in our midst this is due alike to our safety and to him in his acknowledged position as an enemy you have therefore been charged with the duty not inappropriate to the commission you hold in relation to prisoners etc of meeting him in lynchburg and there assuming direction and control of his future movements he must be regarded by you as under arrest permitted unless in your discretion you deem it necessary to revoke the privilege to be at large on his parole not to attempt to escape nor hereafter to reveal to the prejudice of the confederate states anything he may see or learn while therein you will see that he is not molested or assailed or unduly intruded upon and extend to him the attentions and kind treatment consistent with his relations as an alien enemy after a reasonable delay with him at lynchburg to allow rest and recreation from the fatigues of his recent exposure and travel you will proceed with him to wilmington north carolina and there deliver him to the charge of major-general whiting commanding in that district by whom he will be allowed in an early convenient opportunity to take shipping for any neutral port he may prefer whether in europe the islands or on this continent more instructions on this point will be given to general whiting and your duty will be discharged when you have conducted mr vallandigham to wilmington and placed him at the disposition of that commander these directions were carried out and vallandigham sailed for bermuda and thence for halifax august twenty seventh the provost-marshal-general was notified that he was at windsor opposite detroit although lincoln by his adroit disposition of vallandigham had taken much of the dignity out of his position his supporters were determined to make the matter an issue and on may nineteenth the new york democrats and again on june twenty sixth the ohio democrats while urging their loyalty to the union protested against the arrest and called upon the president to restore the exile to his home such arrests and trials as his were they declared contrary to the constitution a violation of the right of free speech and the right to a fair trial on june twelfth and june twenty ninth lincoln replied respectively to those protests in a couple of letters in which he defended his course 
only the briefest extract can be given here but they show the clearness and boldness of his argument the resolutions promise to support me in every constitutional and lawful measure to suppress the rebellion and i have not knowingly employed nor shall knowingly employ any other but the meeting by their resolutions assert and argue that certain military arrests and proceedings following them for which i am ultimately responsible are unconstitutional i think they are not he who dissuades one man from volunteering or induces one soldier to desert weakens the union cause as much as he who kills a union soldier in battle yet this dissuasion or inducement may be so conducted as to be no defined crime of which any civil court would take cognizance ours is a case of rebellion so called by the resolutions before me in fact a clear flagrant and gigantic case of rebellion and the provision of the constitution that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it is the provision which specially applies to our present case mr vallandigham avows his hostility to the war on the part of the union and his arrest was made because he was laboring with some effect to prevent the raising of troops to encourage desertions from the army and to leave the rebellion without an adequate military force to suppress it he was not arrested because he was damaging the political prospects of the administration or the personal interests of the commanding general but because he was damaging the army upon the existence and vigor of which the life of the nation depends he was warring upon the military and this gave the military constitutional jurisdiction to lay hands upon him if mr vallandigham was not damaging the military power of the country then his arrest was made on mistake of fact which i would be glad to correct on reasonably satisfactory evidence i understand the meeting whose resolutions i am considering to be in favor of suppressing the rebellion by military force by armies long experience has shown that armies cannot be maintained unless desertion shall be punished by the severe penalty of death the case requires and the law and the constitution sanction this punishment if i be wrong on this question of constitutional power my error lies in believing that certain proceedings are constitutional when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety requires them which would not be constitutional when in absence of rebellion or invasion the public safety does not require them in other words that the constitution is not in its application in all respects the same in cases of rebellion or invasion involving the public safety as it is in times of profound peace and public security the constitution itself makes the distinction and i can no more be persuaded that the government can constitutionally take no strong measures in time of rebellion because it can be shown that the same could not be lawfully taken in time of peace than i can be persuaded that a particular drug is not good medicine for a sick man because it can be shown to not be good food for a well one nor am i able to appreciate the danger apprehended by the meeting that the american people will by means of military arrests during the rebellion lose the right of public discussion the liberty of speech in the press 
the law of evidence trial by jury and habeas corpus throughout the indefinite peaceful future which i trust lies before them any more than i am able to believe that a man could contract so strong an appetite for emetics during a temporary illness as to persist in feeding upon them during the remainder of his healthful life the democrats called this letter despotic but the people saw the sound sense of the arguments and when in the fall vallandigham still in exile was run for governor of ohio he was defeated by over one hundred thousand votes when a few months later he dared the president came back and began to make violent speeches no attention was paid to him the right of the president to suppress any man who hurt the army and thus the union cause was clearly fixed in the people's mind if anybody wavered lincoln's letters were brought out vallandigham henceforth rather helped than injured the president End of section twelve.